So uh, we have been going through the book of Matthew, and last week we looked at uh, Jesus was accused by the Pharisees of violating the Sabbath. And, uh, and then the following chapter, which we didn't cover, he actually heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, and they just flip out over that. And Jesus points out that Sabbath is for the man, not man for the Sabbath. And, he, and it's always rightful to do good on the Sabbath. And, and it's a day of rest. And we covered that. And I want to commend you because as we talked about the Sabbath and we talked about how we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Day and making Sunday special and going to bed early on Saturday so you can come for the worship and, and enjoy the entirety of it. And it's not a grind. You guys showed up on time. And I, I, I didn't even feel like I guilted you. I really just felt like I was sharing. <laughs> you did it. I'm so excited. It's really sweet. So, uh, yeah, you know what? Clap for yourself on that one, because I think you deserve it. Um, and, then, and then this week, we're, we're taking a look further down in chapter 12 of a very interesting uh, passage of Scripture that Abraham Lincoln actually referred to um, in the Lincoln-Douglas debates when he ran for the U.S. Senate. He actually lost to Stephen Douglas. And uh, he quoted a passage of Scripture that's found in all three of the or three of the four gospels it's in mark 3 luke 11 and it's also here in matthew 12 and the verse that we're going to read um, in a moment had an enormous influence on the united states of america and the verse we're about to read actually transformed the united states of america profoundly um, and it was massively inspirational to abraham lincoln so much so that he put it into the speech and ended up losing because of this verse of scripture he lost to Stephen Douglas for the Senate, and uh, though the speech lost him the Senate and won him the presidency, and we'll take a look at it. So please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We're going to pick up at verse 22. Then one was brought to Jesus who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw, and all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? It's actually an, a positive negative, kind of like they're saying, could this be the Messiah? It, it can't be. Is this the Messiah? Like they're excited about it, but they just, it, could, it, could it be true? Is the Messiah here? That's what son of David means, Messiah. And when they're all excited about it, and all the multitudes are saying this after this demon-possessed guy who's mute and blind starts to see and speak, the multitudes are flipping out going, is it the Messiah? Immediately, the Pharisees, who have a lock on the, on the political realm and the, and the legalism of, of religion and their, their traditions, they jump in because they don't want to lose the crowd. And so here, verse 24, then the Pharisees heard it, and they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, which is translated Lord of the Flies. It's actually the name for Satan. He doesn't cast out demons except by Satan, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. He just said, you guys are idiots. Can you come up with anything more stupid? I mean, why would, why would Satan cast out demons? Okay. And everyone's going, yeah, they're idiots. Verse 26, if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Yeah, right? The son of David is here, the Messiah. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me, is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. You're either for him or against him. You're either, you, you believe him or you don't. And then he says this, and this is, this scares a lot of people, but be patient. We'll get through it. Jesus says, therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the son of man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. We'll cover that. Don't freak out. Some of you are going, oh, oh, no, oh, no. There's hope for everyone in the room if you're still alive. I'll try to speak quick so you can, nothing happens. Verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that every idle word men may speak, they will give account in the day of judgment. For by your words, everyone say by your words. By your words, words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. That's heavy. We'll take a look at it, and you'll feel better. Don't worry. Lord, thank you for your word that's living and breathing. And Lord, we receive it today. We know it's true. We ask that you lead us into all truth. That Lord, we would not only understand it, but apply it. And God, you've you've assembled this room by your spirit. And every person here who, who can hear your word being spoken, spirit living God, fall afresh upon them that they just sense that this is something I completely agree with and I move towards that. Help them, Lord. Even in their unbelief, help them. And God, we thank you for the work you're about to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, relax, sit down. I'll remain standing. So here we have Jesus who's healed everyone sick in Capernaum. He's raised the dead, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, demon possession, I'm all the stuff. He's doing it. He's healed Peter's mother-in-law. He's, he's healed folks with demon possession. He healed, he's healing. And, and even on the Sabbath, he heals a man with a withered hand, and they're giving him grief over it. But all the people are moved because there's finally somebody here who is contending for the fact that, that they're human beings and, and they're important, where the religious world and the political world has bypassed them. You can imagine this man who's blind and mute, sitting in the corner of the synagogue, being passed by day in and day out. Jesus bypasses all the arguments and everyone coming down on him about the, the Sabbath and healing the man with a withered hand. He bypasses them. He turns to this guy. He casts out these demons. So whatever his mute and blind oppression was, it was demonic. And that doesn't mean anyone who's blind is demon possessed. It doesn't mean anyone who's mute is demon possessed. In this case, it was a spiritual issue. And you, we've, we've seen conditions like this where they're, they're psychosomatic and, and whether the enemy's gotten into your mind or however it operates, there's certain things where you just black out or you, you can't process and, and the human body shuts down and being overwhelmed. And in this case, this is oppression. This is demonic oppression. And Jesus delivers him from this to the point where he can see and speak. And, and everyone marvels. They're stunned. They've seen this guy every day. They've come into the synagogue and now they're flipping out because everywhere he goes, something spectacular happens. And, and at this point, this is where it gets dicey for the Pharisees because the minute Jesus does this, the people start to say in this kind of negative positive, they say, could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? And they're like, no, the Messiah's not here yet. We're in charge. Don't, don't go following this guy. You know, they, they've got their corner on the market and they've got these people under their control. And I have to tell you, there's no bigger stick to hit someone over the head with than the stick of God. And religion is a great controlling factor. And, and you can really manipulate people. And one of the reasons why we don't pass an offering bag, and I just prayed for the, the tithe and the offering. We don't pass an offering bag when I was first the pastor of the church. I forgot to have the elders come forward to pass the offering bag. And I noticed that from the week previous to that week, there was no change or loose dollars in the offering bag, which made me think that when the offering bag goes by, people are like, oh man, they throw some money in, tip God and pass it by. And the Bible says the Lord loves a cheerful giver, not out of guilt or compulsion. I kind of felt like that was compulsion because the loose change was people going, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. And, and what was left in the offering bag when I forgot to take the offering were the checks because people had purposed beforehand in worship to the Lord that they wanted to give the first fruits to the Lord and it was an act of worship. So I thought, we'll do that. We'll pray for that, but just put it in the box in the back. And anyone who feels compelled or guilt, bypass them. You'll come to know the Lord. I remember one woman who'd been coming to church for three weeks. She said, where do I put my tithe check? I said, in the, in the box in the back. I said, how long have you been coming to church? She said, three weeks. I said, how long have you been a Christian? She said, three weeks. <laughs> I said, how do you learn about tithing? She says, I, I, you told me to read the Bible. I read the Bible. I got to Abraham and, and, and Melchizedek and the tithe. And, and I, is that, am I doing something wrong? I go, no, 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 no. I think you ought to come and teach the rest of the congregation. <laughs> tithe is, it's a tenth. It's one-tenth. Well, is that, is that uh, before tax or after tax? It just depends on what you want to get blessed on. So that's the, the concept. And, and, and I, I love that. I love that there was a cheerfulness in her heart in relation to that. And so that's, that's the idea. But religion can be very, very dictative. And I don't even know if that's a good word. Uh, but but it, it can control people because they, they, they have a control and it, and it becomes cultural Christianity as opposed to spiritual Christianity. 
And, and here, these Pharisees are losing their grip. They're losing their grip because could this be the son of David? And if this is the case, their, their, their popularity is going to decrease. Christ is going to increase and they got to stop him. They got to do anything they can to shut this guy down. And so this is, this is a cultural revolution that's affecting the political sphere. It's affecting the, the entertainment sphere. It's affecting slavery. It's affecting everything in the culture. This guy has come on the scene and what he's speaking is transforming the culture as they know it and they're flipping out. And so when Jesus does this and all the crowd says, could this be the son of David? Their only response, the quickest response they could come up with is, you know, the only way he's getting that done is he's casting out demons by the power of Satan himself. That man is evil. And, and it's almost like you can imagine the entire room pausing, like, did they just say what I think they said? Satan is casting out demons. And, and Jesus turns to him. I, I, I can almost see his face like, like a Tucker Carlson grin, just. <laughs> did you really say that? <laughs> I'm just sorry. I'm adding that. It's not in the text. I'm just feeling it. But he he turns to him and he just says, he knows their thoughts. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? Are you idiots? There isn't a basketball team on the planet that's going to survive if the team's divided against itself. There isn't a household that's going to survive if they're divided. There isn't a church that's going to survive, a business, a government. Nothing will survive if there's civil war. It's not going to happen. Evil even knows that. Satan even knows that. He's got his dominions. They follow suit. They take orders. That is the dumbest thing I think I have ever heard. I added that too. But I, I find it remarkable in this day and age when, when someone who renounces God, renounces the existence of God, calls me evil. And, and I, I'm taken aback by that. And how they say that I'm stupid and, I, and it's shameful and that I'm evil. And as I contemplate that, I think, you are stealing from my worldview to defend your own. If you don't believe God exists and everything is just matter and there's no God and no spiritual realm and no right and wrong, you can't use the term evil because that constitutes good. You can't do it. You can't use a metaphysical term for a physical worldview. You can't do it. You can't say I'm shameful. You can't say I'm wrong. You can't say that I'm right. You can't say that I'm good. You can't say that I'm evil. You don't get that privilege when you don't have a lawgiver. And you don't, you can't describe love. You can't describe anything that's esoteric. And and the, the strange thing about it is we only live in a world of matter. Well, on this is matter. It's ink and it's a piece of paper from a tree and ink from wherever you get ink. But right here are thoughts that went from my head onto that paper that translates a thought that is metaphysical. It's information imprinted on matter. And in a physical world, you can't have information because information is order. Order is design. Design is the creature. Our founder said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, a Jeffersonian way of saying any idiot can understand this. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That's a gift from God with certain inalienable rights. There's no lien on them. Nobody can take them from you. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness or virtue. And so the nation founded in this, giving everyone identity and realizing that we are the pinnacle of God's creation. We've been created in his image and all of a sudden mankind has value. And we contend in a world where the world wants to suppress the existence of God, use you as slaves for the elite to rule. And you do their bidding so that they don't have to work. And on the scene comes this man who speaks about liberty. And he speaks, as the Apostle Paul says, stand fast therefore in the liberty for which Christ has set you free. And Christ comes in, he starts to set these people free who are oppressed 
and, and he contends with the political world, he contends with the religious world, and, and all of a sudden the people start to feel this freedom and they rise up, could this be the Messiah? And those in authority say, shut him down. And, and they, they accuse him and, and they, they don't even have a good argument. He's casting out demons by the power of Satan. And everyone just says, that's ridiculous. It's, it's crazy. And, and Jesus turns to him and he engages them and he lays out his case and he says, a kingdom will not stand. He says in verse 27, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Because you agree that they need to be cast out. Who are your sons doing it by? And then he goes on, therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, now we've got an issue here. Because you're going to have to contend with the reality that there is a God and he's right in front of you and he has just shown himself and you got one of two choices, submit or perish. How can you enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then plunders his house? He who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. You're either for me or against me, Jesus says. I've come that they might know the truth and the truth will set them free. I've come that they might have life and life more abundant. I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to forgive the world. They're already condemned. We all live with guilt. Some of us can medicate it away or just sear our conscience and forget about it. But we all know there's a right and we all know there's a wrong, even though we want to move the scale and change it. And Jesus said, I have to tell you something because we're getting into some pretty dicey territory. And he speaks to the multitudes and he says, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy. Blasphemy is this idea of, of mocking or ridiculing God or defaming him or slandering him. He says, therefore, I say to you, every sin of blasphemy, mocking, defaming, ridiculing God, every sin will be forgiven men. And I'm thankful because as I look around the room and starting right here behind this wooden stand, I have been guilty of that. I made fun of God. I remember rejecting him and making jokes about him and on and on and on. And Jesus says, therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the spirit, the mocking, slandering, ridicule of the spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the son of man, it will be forgiven him. Go ahead and make fun of Jesus. Go ahead and make fun of Jesus. It'll be forgiven. Whatever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come, present or eternity. You're like, wow, what does that mean? Well, the Bible says all creation speaks of the glory of God. Just like this building speaks of a designer and a creator. We've never met him, but we know, or he, he or she, but we know they exist because it screams of intelligent design. Yes? God exists. There's four seasons. We can count on them. A baby's born. Intricacy, the human cell, so designed and unique and fascinating. DNA structures, the, the, the sperm and the egg come together. The zygote is formed. The DNA that is imputed. The information translated metaphysically beyond just the physical realm. Information is implanted that creates a human being unique unlike any other human being in the history of the world. Created the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together in its mother's womb, the scriptures declare. Not some primordial soup, not evolved from apes. There's not a single transitional creature. There's missing links. There aren't any links. There's no reptile that became a bird. They don't exist. And people laugh at you like you're some flat earth guy because you believe that the first verse of the Bible is legitimate. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Did he do it in a 24-hour period? There was morning, there was evening, the first day. Morning, evening, second day. Morning, evening, third day. Well, gap theory. Well, that's a great one for you, gap. The idea is the literal understanding that God created. Well, how can God create all these things in a 24-hour period? He started in eternity, and before I ever put anything on paper, it began in my head, and then I translated it onto paper. God conceived it in eternity, put it into time. Well, I don't know how you can do it. Well, he's God. And if you could figure it out, you wouldn't be God. And, 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 and so all creation speak, speaks of the glory of God. You can go out into the night sky, see the Big Dipper, follow the last two stars, and you find the North Star every time. The ancients could look out and find where they were anywhere on the earth at any time. They could tell what time of day it was by looking at the sun. Everything had order, structure, design. 
They understood love. They understood law. They understood right. They understood wrong. They understood stealing's bad, murder's wrong, adultery's wrong. They grasp that because it's intrinsic to our nature. It's imputed, put into us. And the scripture says every man is without excuse. It takes more faith to say there isn't a God than there is a God. And you just add the numbers up. And one of the most fascinating things to me in, in this evolutionary mindset is that somehow in a closed system where life doesn't exist, life all of a sudden appears. Well, if that's the case, our entire food industry is, is, is lost. Because when I open up a jar of peanut butter, I don't want to find mold in there. They've created a closed system where life can't be introduced. Life doesn't just spontaneously exist. It has to be introduced. Excuse me. They want to keep that life from being introduced so that you don't get a living organism in your peanut butter. And so when you ask an evolutionist, where did life begin? They don't have the answer. Some of the best ones are aliens. And I'm like, okay, I'll buy that. But who gave life to the aliens? Well, I haven't gone that far yet. And I'm the idiot because I believe God created. And the reason why I'm the idiot is because if God created, I'm submitted to him. I'm accountable to him. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal, endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights. Those rights don't come from man, they come from God. This is transformative of culture. And so when this comes on the scene and Jesus lays this out, this is the problem. All creation speaks of the glory of God. Then you have the Old Testament prophets who declare the Messiah's coming and what he's going to do. And there's 3,000 prophecies pertaining to the Messiah. Jesus fulfills them where the odds are covering the entire state of Texas, three feet deep in silver dollars, painting one red, throwing it somewhere in Texas, parachuting a blind man, letting him wander Texas, pick up one silver dollar and it's the red one. That's fulfilling, I think, 10 of the over 3,000 prophecies pertaining to Christ. Those are the odds. They're, they're unbelievable you just had extra zeros. It's just incredible. So we have all of this testifying. We have the Father testifying. We have the prophets testifying. We have the Word testifying. We have Jesus testifying. And all of this, and you can mock it and ridicule it and, and discard it. But here's the one thing. As you're walking along, as you're whistling by the graveyard, I, I'm, I'm just going to turn into matter, and then I'm just going to dissipate, and nothing's going to happen, and I don't have to worry about death. And what's my purpose in life? There is no purpose. I'm just Nietzsche and it's just scream into the, you know, into the universe and just let everybody know I'm here. Little engine that could. And, and you're, you're pinging on your conscience is this, no, no, I'm here. Oh, who are you? And I don't hear you. Why do I feel a heart for somebody else? That's, that's not love. I am, I'm not. And all of this is speaking to you. And the Holy Spirit is saying, give your life to me. There is a God. He loves you. He wants a relationship with you. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. And you're like, la, 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 la. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. And you know what? It's a still small voice. I'll tell you what hell is. Hell would be eternity having to listen to my sermons <laughs> over and over and over. Because during the sermon, there's a little check. Something's moved you. The conversation you had with your parents, the conversation you had with your friend, the conversation you had with the person at the checkout stand, something's moving you. And you're going to be reflecting on those every time the Holy Spirit said, I I'm here. I want to forgive you. I want to cleanse you. I want to reconcile with you. I want to have a relationship with you. I don't have time for you. I got I to gotta buy things that I, I can't afford with money I don't have to impress people I don't know. I, I can't talk with you. I got to make something of myself. Why? I don't know. But it, uh, universe, because uh, I'm somebody. Well, it says who? I don't know, but I am. <laughs> and, that, and, and that worldview is, is crumbling and the anxiety, and you just go get another prescription and whatever you got to do to make it go away and pursue. And, and, and instead of being run by your sins, just call them gods and worship those. I worship Aphrodite. I, 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 worship, I worship alcohol. I need it. It's my medicine. I'm sick. And all of a sudden, you're just numb and catatonic. 
And the whole time, God's whispering to you. And one of the most fascinating things is a deathbed conversion. I tell people, when you have a loved one, and, and this is what's fascinating, the, the opposing party, that you know, I, they want right to, lie, right to die legislation, they want abortion legislation. I look at these things and I think, this is a party of, of death of the young and the old. One of the most holy moments as a minister, it is hallowed ground when you walk into a hospital room and somebody is in a coma. Every sense of the human body shuts down except for hearing. And they are a captive audience. And I just minister to them while they're there. And they're hearing it all. And, and they, they can't tell me to go away. <laughs> I do it lovingly and gently, but I just tell them, look, you're getting ready to take a big trip. I hope you have your passport. Jesus is the passport. And it's, it's, it's a hallowed moment. And, and you can try to run from it, but Jesus just says there's one sin that won't be forgiven. And that's if in the course of this message, your heart stops beating and you die. And with all of the little whispers and the convictions and the moving on your heart, you just shut him down. He's not upset that you've insulted his son. He's not upset that you've insulted the father. He's not upset that you've mocked creation. He's not upset. He forgives you. But the only thing that can't be forgiven is rejecting his still small voice saying, I love you. I want to be reconciled to you. If you get from point A, which is birth, to point B, which is death, without receiving that voice, that is unforgivable in this age and the age to come. That's it. And and you can have cursed God your entire life. And in Christ, no matter how heinous the sin, no matter how evil the sin, in Christ it can be forgiven right now. But no matter how small and minute the sin outside of Christ, it's damnable. You're separated from God for all eternity because he came to forgive you and to cleanse you. He's a just God. This is communion Sunday. This is a representation of his body broken, his blood shed to pay the penalty because the penalty for sin is death. He paid it. And he said, if you receive it by faith through grace, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, you will be saved. And that that conviction responds to, I receive that gift. And what God does is here we are in our sinful state. And this is the bullseye of perfection over here. And God just moves his righteousness to where you are and you're forgiven. That's a pretty good deal. He's merciful moving it, but he's also just in that he paid the penalty to be able to move it. And he keeps whispering and telling you and and describing it to you. And he's doing everything he can to to captivate your heart because he loves you. He doesn't want you to step into eternity without him. He doesn't want to give you what you're asking for, a life without him, because he knows what that means. He's the author of life. Everything that God isn't, hell is. And he wants you to avoid that. And he says, it comes down to one thing, words, ideology. He's contending with a force that wants you to be dumb and mute. And this is the world that wants you to be their slave and suppress you. And he contends with them. And so they accuse him because they can't debate with him. They just accuse him falsely with, with stupidity. And he says, listen, this is all boiling down to a war of ideology. And it comes down to words. He says, look, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. You want to reject God and make it progressivism, take God out of the schools, take God out of every vestige of the public, you know, just remove God and freedom from religion, not freedom of religion. Just remove God and let's have a progressive state. California used to have the fifth largest GDP, gross domestic production of any, any country in the world. We had this secondary school system where it was the, the, the model of the world, the envy of the world. Our San Joaquin Valley produced more cotton than the entire South combined. Our water delivery system, the way that the, the, the water would come off the ocean and then be stored in the, into the Sierras and come down into the San Joaquin Valley, and, we, and it was, the growing season was longer than any other place imaginable. Our roads were resplendent, everything. And now we have a progressive move, remove God from everything, engage, call our sin anything but it, and, and just all of a sudden embrace anything we want to do, and all, you know, no holes bar. Where are we now? We have the ninth largest GDP. We've dropped. We have the highest gas tax, sales tax, income tax, corporate tax. We have the highest taxes in the country, highest debt of any nation or any state in the nation. Our, our roads are falling apart. Enough water was flowing over the Orville spillway during the storms 
in one day, enough water was flowing over the Orville Spillway in one day to cover the needs of all of Sacramento for two years. We haven't built any water storage since the 70s. We have enough snow in this snowpack that if we had storage, right now it's going to melt and go right out to the ocean. We, we don't have anywhere to store it anymore. Had we had storage, we would have salmon runs. For all you who are environmentally minded, we'd have a salmon run for over 25 years with the water that was given to us by God. But we didn't store any of it. We have no idea of following scripture that we prepare in advance and we prepare for future generations. It's all about me and what I want and what I'm entitled to. And now the state's imploding. And that's the fruit of what we planted. Contrast that with the founders. Their idea is that they looked at, you know, the three branches of government out of Isaiah 33, 22, that you have God as judge, God as king, God as legislator, executive, legislative, and judicial branches. Exodus 18, 21, that's where we get local, county, federal, or state and federal government. Over tens, fifties, hundreds, thousands. Talks about who we're supposed to select and supposed to be a representative form of government. And our founders laid this out and they had the Geneva Bible and they had the old Satan Deluder Act and all of them were trained and there were three great awakenings in the United States. And, And before each great awakening, which was a revival, there was a cataclysmic event for the United States. One was a revolution, the other was a civil war. We watch all these things transpire before us and we have a nation that represents one sixth of the world's population, yet in the history of the world, it represents less than 3% of the world's population. And we are responsible for the greatest achievements of any nation in the history of the world. Why? Because all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. The purpose of government is to protect life, liberty, and the pursuit of virtue. No other nation was founded in that capacity. What is the fruit of it? The greatest freedom, the greatest expanse, the greatest nation ever in the history, longest surviving nation in the history of the world. Constitutional Republic, longer than any other nation that's existing today. That's a good tree, good fruit. This, I'll be the last one here to turn out the lights when everyone moves to another state. Because the fruit here is, is not edible. Our kids can't afford to live here. It, it's unbearable. And this is what Jesus is saying. It's a, it's, it's, it's a battle of ideology. He says, How can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasures brings forth evil things. It is a war of words. And who is going to win? And this is the thing that is fascinating because Jesus stood and he said, a house divided against itself will not stand. It seems pretty logical, doesn't it? Right? I mean, you have a basketball team with amazing players, but one kid is just a knucklehead and he's divisive and he's always ball hogging and he never passes. The team's not going anywhere until you get rid of that kid. Well, he's our highest score. Get rid of him. Watch what happens to the team. In a church, gossip, slander, anything going on, you know. That person, the Bible says in, in Romans, mark those who cause division and have nothing to do with them. It's amazing what it does for a business. It's amazing what it does for a family. It's amazing what it does for a church. When there's unity, but a house divided won't stand. Anyone who's ever been from a divorced home understands when mom and dad are arguing, that house isn't going to last very long. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual praises, making melody in your heart one to another. And you build this family. The kids have a nurtured environment. They grow up healthy and secure. But you cause division in that home. It is not going to survive. And Jesus speaks these words. And what does he get for it? Crucifixion. Crucifixion. When you stand to tell somebody they're wrong... They don't like it. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. My words will divide mother against daughter and father against son. It's hard when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Mutually exclusive. I and no other am the way. I and no other is the truth. I and no other am the way, the life. There aren't many ways to God. There's one, Jesus. Every, Every religion leads to God, but only one leads to heaven. I don't care if you're Buddhist, Muslim, whatever. You die, you will stand before God and give an accounting of your life. Doesn't mean you're going into heaven unless you've embraced the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you need to be forgiven and you realize Jesus paid your penalty and you receive that gift. That is your entrance into the presence of God to be reconciled. And it's a war of words. And when you tell somebody that they're wrong, 
They don't like it. And that's why you speak the truth in love and you're gentle and patient as Jesus was. But with the Pharisees, the ones who had the lock on the minds of the people, he, he, he didn't hold back. He just said, you're a brood of vipers. And I, I don't fault them for that. I thought, I thought it was kind of cool. But I want to come back in our final moments before we take communion to why this passage of Scripture is so significant in the life of our nation. You see, when the colonies, the 13 colonies had to get together, a handful of them were slave-owning colonies. We had to go against the largest empire on the face of the earth, Britain, and to hold these colonies together, they had to come up with a compromise in the U.S. Constitution that would keep these fledgling colonies unified so they could, they could per, stand in unity against a greater evil. They wanted freedom. They wanted a, a, a constitutional republic so that the states would have the freedom and the local governments would have the freedom, but they would be unified to stand against evil. But in their midst was evil itself. And they realized that slavery was a vile evil. And so what they did is in the U.S. Constitution to maintain these states that, that had slavery in their economy, and they knew that they would walk, and, and George Mason, a number of others, they knew that they wouldn't participate in the union. They made a compromise in the Constitution called the Three-Fifths Compromise. They came up with a bicameral legislature, which is the Senate and, and, and the House of Representatives. The Senate, every state gets two representatives. The lower house gets, or gets two senators. The lower house, you get as many Congress members as your population dictates. So for a certain amount of population, you get a representative. Well, that way, the smaller states had representation in the Senate, and the larger states had a greater representation in the House. And so they could work through it so they could maintain this constitutional republic and hold all these states together. But what the founders realized is these slaveholding states were going to take these slaves and they were going to count them as citizens so they could get a larger representation in the assembly to contend for slavery and to make slavery grow. So the founders said, we got to stop that. And so they said, any black man who is free is completely a 100% citizen, but any slave is considered three-fifths a citizen. Not to say they were less than human, but to say to the slaveholders, you can't count them to have representation to abuse them. And they worked it out that they were going to destroy slavery within 30 years, and they put forward the Northwest Ordinance in 1787, that any new territory and any state that came into the union had to be free. Slavery wasn't allowed in any new territories in, in the, the growing nation. And they were waiting for this to die, a natural death. Let the evil just go away. And they figured it would work. The Missouri Compromise in 1820 said that slavery couldn't come into the Missouri Territory. And they made this Missouri Compromise, and that stood but then something happened in 1854, and it was called the Kansas-Nebraska Act. It was put forward by a man by the name of Stephen Douglas, who ran against Lincoln for, for, the, for the U.S. Senate. Stephen Douglas put forward the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and the point of that is he was saying, uh, basically, that in the 30, uh, 30, 36th parallel, where slavery uh, had been outlawed, now in the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which you could go and occupy that territory, but depending on who colonized that territory, if the majority of the people wanted slavery, then slavery could be introduced in this area that once was forbidden in slavery. So all these Southerners sent these folks forward to go and contend to, to get this territory to be slaves so they could increase slavery in the United States. And these abolitionists came into, the, into this Kansas-Nebraska territory, and they started to contend with the pro-slavery and the abolitionists, and they called it Bloody Kansas because everybody was killing each other to try to secure the territory so that you could enslave another human being. And started to destroy the country. And they're trying to stave it off, and it got worse. And in 1854, after Stephen Douglas stepped forward and put forward this Kansas-Nebraska Act, that was it. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. And everybody was livid at that point. They went, they came unglued. And there were 11 people. See, the Whigs and the Democrats were the only two party and they were all becoming, they were all becoming slave, pro-slavery. And everyone looked out at the horizon and, and the Supreme Court had legislated this and they had gone forward to enact all these things. 
1852, Moore versus Illinois, the Supreme Court held that states could impose penalties on citizens for harboring fugitive slaves. So even if a slave got to the north and you tried to keep him free, they can impose penalties on you for trying to keep a person free in the north. And that was in 1852. The Supreme Court upheld that. They legislated from the bench, even though Article 1, Section 1 of the U.S. Constitution says only, only the legislative body, the Congress, can establish law. Well, the Supreme Court ruled from the bench. (laughs) They don't, I've never seen them do that before. (laughs) But in 1854, when the Kansas-Nebraska Act came forward, and after this Moore versus Illinois in 1852, there were 11 people that had had enough. They'd had enough. And I, I want to speak to you in regards to this. Because Thomas Jefferson said, morality is not doing what's wrong. So if your child comes home from school and says, mommy, daddy, the kids in the school called Susie fat, but I didn't. Then you would say to that child, that's the moral thing to do. You didn't do what's wrong. But Thomas Jefferson also said, character is doing what is Right. So your child comes home from school and says, mommy, daddy, all the kids called Susie fat, but I didn't. And you would say to that child, that's the moral thing to do, but where's your character, child? Child would say, what do you mean? Why didn't you tell the other children to stop it? Well, I would have been in the minority in the class and they all would have laughed at me and they would have made fun of me and Susie at the same time. So what? Character is doing what's right. If you have character, you don't have to worry about having morality because you can't be doing what's right and be doing what's wrong at the same time. Jesus pointed that out. And so 11 people with character came forward to start a new party. And this isn't partisan. I'm not singing praises because the party that they formed in, in 1854 is not the party of 2017. But these 11 people got together in a congregational church in Rapon, Wisconsin for the sole purpose of abolishing slavery. They formed the Republican Party. Everybody laughed at him. But they did it because they were so frustrated with Stephen Douglas and the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and they were upset with Moore versus Illinois, and it was endless. And then they had to deal with the Dred Scott decision, which was Justice, Chief Justice uh, Taney. He said slaves were property and not citizens, but neither of these clauses address citizenship. So what he said is any black man in the United States, the Supreme Court said any black person in the United States is not a citizen. That was the ruling from the Supreme Court. These 11 people said, that's it. That's it. We're contending. And so as they got together, they, they fought this and they formed the Republican Party in 1854 on July 6th. And on June 16th, 1858, they put forward a man who had only had one term as a, a congressman from the state of Illinois. He had lost every race he'd ever run for. He won the congressional seat and then didn't win re-election. His name was Abraham Lincoln. He decides to run for the U.S. Senate against Stephen Douglas, this guy who had put forward the Kansas-Nebraska Act. A thousand delegates meet in Springfield, Illinois, the Republican convention, new party. They put forward for the, for the U.S. Senate, Abraham Lincoln, and he gives his, his address for his, his, you know, bid for office at 8 p.m. that night. As he stood up, he gave this speech, and this is one of the most famous speeches in the history of our nation. But it was fascinating that when he called it a house divided speech, where he referred to Mark 3, Luke 11, and now Matthew 12, his friends regarded the speech as as too radical for the occasion. In particular, his law partner, William Herndon, he considered Lincoln as morally courageous, but he considered him also politically incorrect. Lincoln read the speech uh, to, to William Herndon before he delivered it, referring to the house divided language. He said, the proposition is indisputably true, and I will deliver it as written. I want to use some universally known figure expressed in simple language as universally known that it may strike home to the minds of men in order to rouse them to the peril of the times. And then Herndon reflected on it several years later, and he said the speech did awaken the people, and despite Lincoln's defeat, he lost the bid for senator. Despite Lincoln's defeat, he thought the speech made him president. Pretty fascinating. This is the speech that lost him the bid for the Senate, but won him the presidency. If we could first know where we are and whither we are tending, we could then better judge what to do and how to do it. We are now far into the fifth year since a policy was initiated with the avowed object and confident promise of putting an end to the slavery agitation. 
under the operation of that policy that agitation has not only has not only not ceased but has constantly augmented in my opinion it will not cease until a crisis shall have been reached and passed a house divided against itself cannot stand i believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all another. That infuriated people. And Stephen Douglas had sport with him and made mockery of him. And it angered William Herndon. And Lincoln lost the senatorial bid. He was elected to the presidency, though, in 1860. He had the lowest popularity rating of any any entering president. Before he'd even taken the oath of office, seven seven states seceded from the Union. He came into Washington disguised. Many said disguised as a woman, but he came into Washington disguised under the Pinkerton directive. And as he he came in, they mocked him and ridiculed him in the papers. And, And every press outlet was vehemently against him, including Horace Greeley, who had once published the Lincoln Douglas debates. He was now coming out vehemently against Lincoln and mocked him. They character, characters of him and his buffoonery and, and endless. They made sport of him. They mocked him and ridiculed him. They said he was ugly. They attacked his wife. They attacked everything. He had the lowest popularity rating. It was so bad that when the war ensued, they wanted to impeach him. Early on, they wanted him finished. They, everyone fought against him. And people were dying and the world, the nation's being ripped apart. And people, 650,000 people died on a field of battle. Every home lost a son, a brother, a husband, a father. They lost them all. And the nation is blaming him and he's living under this misery. Elizabeth Keckley, the aide in the White House, would look over his shoulder and saw him continually reading the Bible. The book of Job and his personal Bible is weathered. He's the only president who never uh, uh, joined membership to any church. Only president of the United States who never had a, a formal membership to a church. People wondered. Herndon wondered if he was a believer. Keckley said he came to Christ in office. And he, he voraciously read the scriptures every day and prayed and found consolation. She would find him on his knees praying. And through this ordeal, at the conclusion of his first presidency, his first term of office, he knew he was going to lose to George McClellan, who was the general, who was a Democrat. And he, he knew that McClellan was going to give the South what they wanted, and they were going to seal the Mason-Dixon line, and everything South would be slave, everything North would be free. And so he turned to Frederick Douglass, the first black man invited into the White House, not as a slave or as a servant, but as a human being. And he said to Frederick Douglass, I need you to get south of the Mason-Dixon line and tell every black person to get north because McClellan is going to win this election. He's going to seal the border. And Frederick Douglass realized what an amazing president, an amazing man he was. And as you know, close to the election, when everyone knew that he was going to lose, Sherman made it down to Atlanta and split the South. And the war was coming rapidly to a close and everyone started to rejoice because of the news. And Lincoln's stock started to rise and he ended up winning re-election as a result. And it was, it was less than two months for the war's end to be enacted and less than a month before he'd be shot in the back of the head. He stood up to give the second inaugural address after he'd begun with a house divided will not stand, he watched this house divided. He watched the misery. And now he saw that it could either be all free or all slave. And by the fight of ideology and words, the nation, though we lost 650,000 people on a field of battle, the warp and the woof of the fabric of our nation has removed slavery. And that great evil has been removed. And we can rejoice as a nation once again, all from those words. As he stood up to address the crowd, There was exuberance because they wanted to stick it to the South. They wanted their pound of flesh. They wanted, they were responsible for the death of their loved ones and they wanted to crush the South. Lincoln's heart was moved. In the audience that day on March 4th, 1865, listening to the inaugural dress, and it rained for weeks and weeks and weeks, and there was mud, and the women in their lovely dresses were sitting, standing in mud, listening to this, and the heavens opened, and, it, and, and historians describe light shining down on him as he began the second inaugural dress, which is in the Lincoln Memorial, if you ever want to go and read it. But in the audience that day was John Wilkes Booth and Louis Payne and Edmund, Edmund Spangler and John Surratt, who were all implicated in the assassination of Lincoln. They were all there waiting to kill him, just as the Pharisees were waiting to kill Jesus. And he used his second inaugural address to touch on the question of divine providence, which he had labored with as a man 
He said he wondered what God's will might have been in allowing the war to come and why to assume the terrible dimensions it had taken. And he endeavored to address some of these dilemmas using allusions taken from the Bible. Of all the presidents in the United States, he's used scripture more in his inaugural address than any other other president. He quoted out of the book of Genesis, chapter 3, Matthew, chapter 7, Matthew 18, Psalm 19, 9, Psalm 147, James 127. I won't go into it because of time delays. But after Lincoln's death, his secretary found among his papers an undated manuscript, now generally known as Meditations on the Divine Will of God. And he wrote, The will of God prevails in great contests. Each party claims to act in accordance with the will of God. Both may be and one must be wrong. It's a war of words, as Jesus pointed out in Matthew 12. We're fighting for the minds and hearts of humans. God cannot be for and against the same thing at the same time. Robert E. Lee loved Jesus. Stonewall Jackson loved Jesus. He was a Sunday school teacher. And they prayed to God and they asked for God's will. And the North did the same thing. Julia Ward Howe's Battle Hymn of the Republic Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He has trampled out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory. Right? Okay. All right, all right, all right. But at the same time, at the same time that the North was marching to that tune, the South was declaring Deo Vindese, which is the model, uh, motto that's translated, God will vindicate us. They all prayed to God. One was right and one was wrong. A house divided will not stand. And um, after he'd given the second inaugural address, I'm almost finished, but after he'd given the second inaugural address, Thurlow Weed came up to him to compliment him on his speech. And Lincoln said, I believe it is not immediately popular. Men are not flattered by being shown that there is a difference of purpose between them and the Almighty. Nobody likes to be told they're wrong. Nobody likes to be told that they're to be submitted to a God of the universe. No one wants to examine their heart to see if they're wrong. And as he stood up, they were expecting him to give it to the South the entire address was 701 words. It took just a few minutes to, to speak, but it contained neither gloating nor rejoicing. At the end of it, Frederick Douglass came up to him, and Lincoln said to him, I saw you in the crowd today listening to my inaugural address. And the president remarked to Frederick Douglass, and Frederick Douglass responded after Lincoln said, How did you like it, Mr. Douglass? And this, this black man who had rose in the ranks of life, who had been so endeared to Lincoln, turned to Lincoln and he said, that was a sacred effort, Mr. President. It changed the warp and the woof of the fabric of our country. Here it is. At this second appearing to take the oath of presidential office, there's less occasion for an extended address than there was at first. Then a statement somewhat in detail, of course, to be pursued seemed fitting and proper. Now, at the expiration of four years, during which public declarations have been constantly called forth on every point and phase of the great contest, which still absorbs the attention and engrosses the energies of the nation, little that is new could be presented. The progress of our arms, upon which all else chiefly depends, is as well known to the public as to myself, and it is, I trust, reasonably satisfactory and encouraging to all. With high hope for the future, no prediction in regard to its venture. On the occasion corresponding to this four years ago, all thoughts were anxiously directed toward an impending civil war. All dreaded it. All sought to avert it. While the inaugural address was being delivered from this place, devoted altogether to saving the Union without war, insurgent agents were in the city seeking to destroy it without war seeking to dissolve the Union and divide effects by negotiation. Both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive, and the other would accept war rather than let it perish, and the war came. One-eighth of the whole population were colored slaves, not distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern part of it. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. All knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war, To strengthen, perpetuate, and extend this interest was the object for which the insurgents would rend the Union even by war. 
And while the government claimed no right to do more than to restrict the territorial enlargement of it, neither party expected for war the magnitude or the duration which it has already attained. Neither anticipated that the cause of the conflict might cease with or even before the conflict itself should cease. Each looked for an easier triumph and a result less fundamental and astounding. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. And it may seem strange that any man should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of another man's face. But let us not judge that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope and fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another. Drawn with the sword, as was said 3000 years ago, so it still must be said the righteous judgments or the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. With malice towards none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive to finish the work we are in to bind up the nation's wounds and to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan to all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Can we show this? Do we have it? Click the first. The next. And this is a result, the 13th Amendment of the United States, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any subject to their jurisdiction. All because of a man's words and his character. And before us, is the God who's been whispering to you your entire life. You're either for me or against me, but I've always been for you. I've come that you might have life and life more abundant. I've come to remove that scourge. I've come to use you as an instrument of righteousness to transform the world. But it comes when I first transform your life. Submit yourself to me. Let me be your savior. Let me be your God. And watch what I will do in and through you to change the world for good. It was painful for Christ. It was painful for Abraham Lincoln. Look, imagine how painful it was for those enslaved that have now been set free. This is the call. And this is the great privilege. And you feel it moving in your chest. And that's the Holy Spirit. Maybe today you are going to ignore it. That's your will. But it's appointed once for man to die, then judgment. God doesn't want to judge you. He wants to forgive you. He's going out of his way to speak to you softly and tenderly. Jesus is calling. He wants you to come. And if you think, you don't know what I've done, Pastor. Alice Cooper was like the rock star. He was like the Marilyn Manson my age. He's now a believer in Christ. And he just says, I was wrong and God forgave me. It's, I don't care how heinous the sin, how, how deep and miserable the sin, in Christ it's forgiven. However small the sin, outside of Christ, it's condemned. We stand condemned in a fallen world and there's redemption. I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to forgive the world. But to be forgiven, you must ask. And the whisper is speaking to your heart. And words are moving the culture. 
And there's a world that desperately needs men and women who have the character of Christ. And as we take communion together, I pray that as Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body broken, my blood shed. I pray that as you hold those elements, you realize what he did to deliver us and to give us character to deliver others. Don't take it lightly. Let the Lord move upon your heart. May you be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for your faithfulness, that you use all of creation. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, the prophecies, the word of God, Jesus coming to the earth, all these things, and yet we have rejected you, we've denied you, we've mocked you, we've ridiculed you, we've scourged you, we've scorned you. And yet none of, that, none of that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Because even now, Holy Spirit, you are speaking to every heart in the room and they feel their chest pounding and they know it's you and they know what's right. They know what they're to do. And it just simply comes with calling Jesus Lord and receiving forgiveness. And then it's a life that is transformed from there forward. So Spirit of the living God, as we prayed earlier, that you'd move in our life and do a great work this day. Lord, I pray that you do that as everyone present would take communion together, realizing that they are receiving forgiveness. They're going to be saved by faith through grace. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And they come freely of their own accord to say, Jesus, you are Lord. Thank you for forgiving me. You set me free and you've given me character to set others free. Bless us, Lord, we pray as we take communion in your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.